So this is the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach, here today in Austin, Texas, at the home of Bruce Tate. According to his website, Bruce Tate is a kayaker, mountain biker, father, author, and Java programmer in Austin, Texas. He's written five books with a few more on the way. 17 years of experience, including uh, time at IBM, two failed startups, and now his own independent consulting practice called J2 Life. He's the author of Beyond Java and the upcoming Ruby on Rails up and running that will be published by O'Reilly. So welcome. Thank you. So uh, you've kind of quite a stir lately in the Java community. Some of your comments, and of course, then Beyond Java... A lot of people reacted to that when you wrote it. Was that how long ago was that published? I mean, that's pretty recent, right? That so I started the book, I guess, last March, um, and then worked so on less it. than a year ago. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the book was um, actually written um, and actually came out in, in about three months, which is quicker than I've, I've ever done it before. Um, but you know, sometimes when when something clicks inside your head, ideas come pouring out, you know, and it seems like that this book was um, a couple of years of pent-up frustration kind of spilling onto the page. Yeah, the basic, for people who haven't read it, the basic idea behind that book was that Java had come a certain distance and yet people needed to, to learn to think in new ways and maybe look at other languages. To just give a summary about the main point of, the, of that book. So I think that languages come in cycles. If, if, if you think of, um, I guess, COBOL was 54, Fortran 61, then early 70s C, early 80s C++, um, 96 Java. That's about one every 10 years. And if you think about it, it's 2006 now. So um, we should be looking um, for the next one. Um, I think that a lot of people got surprised with the success of Java. And so... Um, while it makes a lot of sense to um, kind of bury your head in the sand in the middle of, of the peak of popularity for a language, it doesn't make nearly as much sense when you're on the tail end of the adoption curve. But sometimes that's hard to recognize. So beyond Java, it's not about saying Java is dead. It's about, it's about saying, hey, maybe it's time for us to pick up our eyes. Um, but I think that when, when I talk about that kind of subject, uh, people ask me, well, you wrote beyond Java, so Java's dead, right? And usually I'll say something like, nothing could be farther from the truth. I'm talking about dead like COBOL, not dead like Elvis. And um, I don't know if you saw it, but the, uh, the, the server-side framework picked that quote up um, without the context. So, you know, the front page of the server-side, which is a hardcore Java community, first quote is, Bruce Tate says, Java, dead like COBOL, not like Elvis. <laughs> And then it was, he's a witch, burn him! <laughs> you haven't gotten any death threats or anyone... Uh, I could be a disguised, disgruntled Java programmer here to... Uh, no, I've checked you out. You, you know how my detect is it. No, um, actually, it stopped just short of death threats, which um, really caught me by surprise. I've never kind of had the personal attacks until um, this last round. But, um, but, you know, I'm not afraid of the truth, so... Well, for me, and, you know... Obviously, I'm younger, getting into all this, but you know, about five years ago, graduated from college, and uh, Java was what I was learning then. It was kind of my introduction to object-oriented programming, and you know, right there, even 99, 2000, 
the big thing was always, you know, Microsoft's coming out with C Sharp, Java's on the way down, people aren't going to be programming Java anymore. So it's surprising how quickly it's turned to where now it's like Java is the entrenched authoritative way to go, even in just a couple of years. Absolutely. Um, and, and you can think of it as, um, you know, the market leaders like to be proprietary. And um, every now and then you'll see, well, often you'll see um, others in the industry try to gang up behind a standard and try to push that standard to be the market leader. Um, and when that happens, um, strange things can go on. Like, for example, with, within Java, um, now that Java is pretty much the way to code on the server side, and you know you've got the the um, the Microsoft.net is the evil twin, <laughs> and, but but it's really um, just another um, just another Java. There, there, of course, there are um, there are significant differences, but it's really the same programming model, the same paradigms, and and um, you know in many ways a lot of the same types of frameworks. And but now that Java has been established as a standard that's shared across a couple of companies. Well, you start to see a little bit of splintering of that because now once you're the market leader, now um, it pays to be proprietary to lock the customers in, right? So you have um, some companies starting to try to say, where can we take this? How can we grab this Java thing of our own and and try to push it into corporations in a way that it's not going to easily come out? Well, uh, David Hennemeyer Hansen specifically said that he... Picked a big target, poked it in the eye to make it go bananas, and that target, at least initially, was Java. That got a lot of publicity for Ruby on Rails because he was throwing stones at the big dog and and got it to bark back at him. Now, Java did a little bit of that. Your son did a little bit of that in the marketing of Java early on. Do you think that's a requirement for any up-and-coming language to try to ruffle up the... uh, the reigning king, or, you know, obviously I mean, we've almost got a little bit of a backlash against Ruby fanboys who say Ruby's the only way to do everything. This this is kind of interesting to me because, um, you know, David is brilliant at what he does, but his style is not my style. I don't try to poke a finger on any, any into anybody's eye. It just kind of happens sometimes, right? <laughs> but I'm not afraid of the truth, and I think that... Um, you can either look at a programming language as a means or as an end. And if you're looking at a programming language as a means, it's just a tool to get a job done. And religion just falls out of it. But once a language is entrenched and that language becomes a meal ticket, then the language becomes the end. And when that happens, um, you're going to have you're going to get passion stirred up, whether you want to or not. Because now, when you threaten a language, you're threatening somebody's ability to feed their family, and um, that's why things like like even even putting the two words together beyond Java, or it's the second time I've done it now. The first time was with a book called Bitter Java that said, "Hey, sometimes these projects don't work," and um, but this time I'm saying that maybe they don't work because, well, Java is flawed. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that some, in, in some ways it's, it's inevitable that you're going to poke some fingers into some eyes, whether you're intending to do so or not. And, and um, David's style and my style are a little bit different. 
but in some ways the result is the same. In spite of, of some of the reactions, you're very level-headed, you're not saying that no one should ever write a single line of Java code again, but you've said that people, uh, even Java programmers, can improve their programming by learning Ruby or maybe other languages. Just briefly, what are some of the things that people could learn or how should they go about learning Ruby in order to improve their Java programming? It's almost not not a point that you need to make that that Ruby developers need to learn about Java to improve their Ruby development because so many people have used Java in so many contexts. And and, um, from the Java community's perspective, there's a lot out there that, um, that people... Um, that Java developers have never seen and really never been motivated to look at. Um, things as, as basic as um, using a functional language. Um, I know a lot of people who have never written a line of Lisp. You know, that, that, that type of programming um, is, is alien to them. I know a lot of other developers who have never, um, never seen any small talk, which to me is important because there's a new paradigm coming out of that, com- that community called the continuation server that actually got started on, on the Ruby side with, um, you know, the, the uh, what, what framework was it? Um, was it was it Borges or... Um, yeah. Iowa. Iowa. Iowa the okay. Iowa framework. I guess Borges is a, um, is, is a port of, of Seaside. But the Iowa framework was really the framework that, that Avi Bryant, the founder of Seaside, cut his teeth on. And, and in a couple of years, we're all going to be writing continuation servers, right? So it does okay. pay... To learn other languages and bring some of those ideas um, back back to your roots. A lot of people have said that Rails really doesn't come up with anything brand new. It just takes a number of ideas, puts them together in a good package, and makes it easy for people to do stuff. Do you see a continuation type server then is the next step that's really doing web development a lot differently than it has been? Yeah, so... Um I mean, I, I saw a quote that was um, very funny um, a couple, couple of days ago. I, I completely forgot the context, but the the, um, the author of um, or the creator, founder of Seaside, is a guy named Avi Bryant. Um, I've never met him. Um, I've communicated with email a couple of times, but it is an amazing framework. It doesn't have the traction that Rails does. I think that Rails is attraction to me is that it's on a very good, very clean, dynamic language, and that language has a catalyst and, and a platform, right? And, and, and the combination of the two is what you need to succeed in the marketplace. So the quote was that, um, hey, I could never be as productive, or nobody, I, I defy anybody to be as productive as as, um, as I have with the Rails framework, except Avi. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I think Brian that there's Davis. something to the, the the continuation servers. I think there's something to Lisp. I think there's something to Erlang. But right now, um, my money is on Ruby on Rails because again, that's a dynamic language that that really looks at um, lets me look at problems in a different way, and it's got a catalyst, so it's got a shot in the marketplace. And a big community coming up around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like it attracts a certain kind of people that are uh, adding to it in significant ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely believe that um, that programming languages need to succeed in different ways than than um, than other technologies, and, and and the reason is that if you're looking at a technology adoption curve, there's there's a great book a couple of years ago called Crossing the Chasm. Might have been like ten years ago or so, right? And it, it kind of looked at the wave shape of an adoption curve, and at the early end, you had early adopters and um, and visionaries. 
And then um, you had this huge group of pragmatics. Well, the visionaries will adopt a technology because it gives them a competitive edge. The pragmatics will not adopt a technology until um, other pragmatics adopt it, right? So you've got a gap there. And, and, and the way to make a technology succeed is to cross that initial gap. Because once you get the pragmatics, you'll have enough market share to drag everybody else along. But um, with a new programming language, it is especially hard to get the pragmatics because you've got to convince them that this will be successful before their peers, the other pragmatics are on board. And so you absolutely have to have the catalyst. The catalyst is what's going to bring the community along. With Java, the catalyst was, um, was web development, um, building Java into um, Netscape. With, with C++, the catalyst was client-server computing, and, and the idea that, that we needed to write applications in client-server mode, which have more demanding performance requirements, so you could be closer to the hardware. And with Ruby, the catalyst is Rails. And, and um, I mean, I love Rails. I'm not sure if, if Rails is the end or if, if Rails is just the first of, of, of a long list of, of metaprogramming frameworks. I mean, this, this might not be um, 10 years from now. This might not be um, David Heinemeyer Hansen's best best set of frameworks um he, he may have gone on to do um even more brilliant things we'll never know but it, it's an extraordinarily important framework because it's serving as the catalyst for really the first dynamic object-oriented language i maybe the answer to this question is obvious but a lot of speaking of small talk in particular a lot of people hear small talk and they think oh that's you know that language is popular in the 70s and it's beyond its time and maybe a few crufty old people in banks use it but and people have kind of written it off, and yet, I mean, it's inspired a lot of other languages. The concepts in there are amazing. All of it, you know, here with Ruby, we're trying to get a decent virtual machine. Well, Smalltech has a great virtual machine. and Refactoring you know, IDE, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you ever see Smalltalk having a catalyst and, and being in the public eye again, or have too many people written it off and they're not going to even consider it again? Now, and beyond Java, I, I, I put across the theory that, um, that a programming language has a window of time from the moment that it gets noticed, not the moment that it gets created, but from the moment that it gets pushed into the mainstream um, until, you know, until maybe it's five years or maybe ten years. Um, but at some point, I think the window closes. Like, we think that we've understood Lisp well enough. We're not, gonna, um, we're not going to return to Lisp, though... You know, maybe we will in some form, right? Maybe someday all things will come back to small talk and list. But I got myself in trouble, and I think that justifiably so. Um, I said that small talk was um, basically a train that had rusted at the station, right? Okay. It's been sitting in that place too long. Um, hasn't really exploded. And I've revised my view somewhat. Um, I mean, if you look at the small talk community, it's a vibrant economy. It's just not growing like other things are growing. And strange and wonderful things are happening there, like, um, like Seaside. Like um, there's a croquet operating system that, um, that really is object-oriented from the inside out. It, it is just stunning. And, and the differences between um, what's done there um, and, and what's done in other places. And, and there's um, obvious new project called DabbleDB which is just an extraordinarily productive way for people to build, um, for non-programmers to build applications 
that they have been hosting on things like spreadsheets. That's their target market. And, and so, I mean, I think that there, that, that there is something to small talk, but I also think that succeeding on a small scale and, and succeeding on a broad commercial scale only happens once every 10 years or so. And, and it might be that just like, um, like Java stole its thunder so many years ago, it might be that Ruby is stealing the thunder right now as we speak. I mean, half a million downloads. That's, that's a lot. In spite of the popularity of the show, I've only had requests for three people. Someone wrote in and said, Hey, it'd be great if you interviewed Jim Wyrick. Well, he, that was last week or two weeks ago. And, and every other day, people write in and say, Why the lucky stiff? You've got to interview him. And hopefully, <laughs> even this weekend, I'm going to talk to him. And the third one was you. And so... Someone wrote a few questions, say, hey, if you ever interview Bruce Tate, ask him about this. He uh, comes from a Java background, but also looking at Rails, and he says, uh, you mentioned the book Beyond Java, about how you got started with Rails. Was it easy migrating your J2EE projects to Ruby on Rails, and once those went into production, were you happy with it? So um, the story of migrating to Ruby on Rails is one that always gets me in trouble. But um, okay, you know, but but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, we had we had a startup. We had some. Um, we basically coded an application in lightweight Java stack, which is Spring, Hibernate, and then we used WebWork. Could have been something else. Um, so we had some collateral. We had we had a data model. We had um, a web UI. Um, and it took us about four months to get where we were, um, partially because the, the technology that we're, we were using didn't match the problem. You know, we had, we had some, some, um, some cycles in, in the persistence graph that, um, that we had problems resolving. And, and there, were, there were some other problems. But, um, but basically, one of the problems was that the feedback cycle with the customer was too long. So the customer asks for something a month or I'm sorry, a week and a half. We give it to them in in, in a form that's that's polished enough to show them. So so we basically couldn't deliver the changes fast enough um, for the customer. Well, Dave Thomas has been tell, telling me about this Ruby on Rails thing, and, and I've been blowing him off. And and finally, I started taking him seriously, and I, I um, started asking him questions. Um, and and not a very kind tone, right? So I said, "Well, surely Rails can't do this, huh? or you know, this toy is not going to be able to do this." And and finally, he said, "Bruce, shut up and get back to me and and tell me when you when you've done something non-trivial." Okay. And so I, I said, "I'm going to throw this application at Rails, and I'm just going to squash it, right?" And two days later, the data model was done, right? And I called my my partner Justin Getland, and and he said, um, "Bruce, I've coded." the whole application in four nights. Which, you know, I know that we had a lot of collateral. I know that this is the second time through, but this is kind of like people um, wandering around in Phoenix in 120 degrees saying, yeah, but it's a dry heat, right? I mean, fast is fast. And this is what started me writing the book Beyond Java. Okay. Right? So, um, I mean, I, I think that it, the, the, the experience porting the application was just amazingly simple. Um, it, it was like when, when, I, when I moved from Enterprise Java Beans to the lightweight Spring Framework, I found out that a port was throwing a lot of code away. And that's essentially what this was like. I didn't have to have a lot of the supporting persistence layer. I didn't have to have facade on top of that. Um, the, the, the architecture, the Rails architecture, fit 
exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to babysit a big fat relational database and stick a web UI on front and not get in the way. And it did. And so we're great. Um, it's never going to see the light of day, probably um, not for reasons of the application. It's fast enough. It does what we want it to do. Um, the Ajax let us build a prettier user interface than we could build in Java. But there are business problems with, with the client, and um, I, I don't think it's going to get funded. Well, speaking of that, do you think enterprise companies will, if they use Ruby on Rails, will they build just small internal applications first to try it out? Will they go whole hog and, and do kind of what you did with a major application? Where How do you see that happening? So you mentioned an earlier book, um, uh, earlier that, that I was working on a book called um, Rails Up and Running, and that's... that's um, that's with a Raleigh. I've got another book coming out that I'm excited about, and that's called Java to Ruby. And and the philosophy um, of that book is that this is a programmer-driven revolution, but the managers need justification too. So we're going to market the book to programmers, but it's a book that a programmer can give to their manager. Okay. And we talk about a couple of scenarios. One of the scenarios is bet your business, and that's the startup model, right? I mean, you don't have any problems convincing a startup that... They need leverage. They need to be able to execute faster than everybody else. Rails is an easy sell. There are a couple of other interesting markets that I found as I was interviewing people for the book. One of the models was that, um, you know, we found that if, if there's an entrenched Java shop that has religion, you're not going to sell, sell them on Rails. Don't try. But there was a surprising customer set, and that's the set of customers that, that's been very conservative, and they're just now getting into Java. And to learn Java, they find that they, they have to learn this, this set of specifications that's about um, two, three feet high, right? Um, you know, this, this stack of binders, you know, okay, learn this servlet thing, which means you've got to learn this XML thing to deploy it. Oh, this XML thing has added this namespace thing and this schema thing. And, oh, well, you need some kind of middleware. And, and the middleware is maybe the Spring Framework or Enterprise Java Bean. So you have to pick which one. And then you have to, um, once you have that picked, then you have to plug a persistence engine into that. And, oh, by the way, after you pick the one and hopefully pick right, you have to do the web UI and model view controller layer. And then, and then you know, you're talking about JSPs. And, oh, what tag library do you want to use with that? It is just absolutely overwhelming. Um, and... So three times in a row, I tried to teach COBOL programmers Java. Okay. <laughs> and your eyes got really big, and mine should have, but I was arrogant, and I, I thought I was, I was a, a great instructor. I think I'm pretty good, but, but I'm not that good, right? And, and um, one of the projects failed. One of the projects succeeded, though exceeded, it succeeded basically because... Um, you know, a, they brought a, a smart job guy on that basically wrote the project, and, and the COBOL programmers didn't get in the way, right? Okay. And one of them, they said, Bruce, you're crazy. We're not going to do this in Java. What should we do it in instead? And I pointed them to actually Plone um, because they were building a content management system. And I said, well, why don't you use a prepackaged one? And, and they were quite successful. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's there are um, there are a lot of models, but but the po- that pocket of conservative customers can literally skip a generation by adopting Ruby. Okay, right. So um, so, so they go from COBOL to Ruby. Sure, sure, or or C You know, there are a lot of people that are that are moving over from, gosh, even Cold Fusion or um, Visual Basic derivatives or any of those old client server architectures that were very productive, they were quick and dirty. 
where Rails is quick and clean. And I think you can sell that, and I think you can teach them that. Another question, and we'll wrap it up here. Uh, do you see Python or other dynamic languages becoming more popular now that there's a focus on Ruby as a dynamic language? I used to always say no, that they really needed a catalyst first. And, and I believe that um, that the next big thing for Java might be a bunch of little things. And um, so I think probably we'll see one dominant dynamic language, and Ruby's got a great shot at that. It might be something else. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe this DabbleDB um Video that's going out is going to is, is going to get out there and, and just cut the heart out of you know not just Ruby on Rails but also Python and Perl. I don't know, but I think that you bet on on the market momentum. It looks like to me that Rails has crossed the chasm, and that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. So you have a good language, you have a good catalyst for the language, and um, you know hey we're solving simple problems now, but that's where Java started too. Um, so I think that the interesting thing behind all of this is that um, is that Python has a commercial interest that's just a juggernaut in Google. Yeah. And um, Ruby doesn't have that commercial interest outside of Japan. So if Ruby succeeds in this way, it will be the first language that has succeeded without the major corporate sponsorship. And I'm very excited to think about where that's going to take us. Yeah, um, yeah. So that if the community is entrenched enough, and if the respected opinions out there are out of shops like Thirty Seven Signals, and maybe Thirty Seven Signals gets bought, maybe it doesn't. Hopefully not. Um, that's pretty exciting, right? Because because now um, rather than me trying to chase the dollar signs early on and saying, "Hey, job is great for this now," but how do I solve the hardest five percent of the problems? That distorts a language worse than you can believe. Well, I'm sure you believe. It. You've watched this Java thing um, start simple and get to a point where it's completely unapproachable. Ruby on Rails up and running. I read a little rough cut of that, and you're not kidding. First chapter just dives in, starts you off on a project. Give us a little plug for that. Tell us what that's about. When can we expect to see that? So, um, Kurt Gibbs is the other co-author now for, for Up and Running. Um, started that book with David Gary, um, but but um, I think that he's, he had some other things to work on. Kurt's working on it now, and I think that we're going to push another chapter up there, and then there will just be two to go. Um, so, I'm not sure how, how long the production process will take, um, but I would think probably within a couple of months that will be out. And um, the other book, Java to Ruby, I'm also excited about. That's with Dave Thomas's... Um, Pragmatic bookshelf. Okay. And yeah, yeah, I'm very excited about that book because so far everything that we've seen has basically sold the programmers. Well, let me tell you, they're sold. The managers are a different animal. Um, so we need to we need somebody out there to tell the truth about risk that says, hey, um, Ruby is a new language that carries risk. But once you chose some language, you're working in Rails. That's that's a framework. Say you choose Java, which is low risk. Well. Now, which model view controller framework are you going to bet in? Which persistence engineering are you going to bet in? And if you bet wrong on the Java side, you're going to cost yourself a whole lot of money. If you bet wrong on the Ruby side, the language is dynamic enough and flexible enough where you can patch your way out of a lot of trouble. So um, I'm, I'm really excited about Java to Ruby. 
Well, great. That'll be exciting to see that come along. Well, thanks for spending some time. It's been entertaining. Thank you. It's been um, it's it's a surprise to me that you want to talk to a guy that's only been doing Ruby for a very short time. But um, but thank you, and I hope hope your um, listeners enjoy it. So I'm here in Austin, Texas, for the South by Southwest Interactive Festival. Hope to hunt down a few other rich, famous, and stunning Ruby programmers for the show in the next few days. Two little plugs. Check out the Web 2.0 show podcast put on by Chris Saylor and Josh Owens. They also have a web host and are offering a discount to Ruby on Rails podcast listeners. Type in Rails for the promo code at steelpixel.com. Also for myself, going to be teaching a Ruby on Rails seminar one day in London on March 30th. Go to carsonworkshops.com for the details.